Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people. Not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Hi there, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text podcast team. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Casper. Hey, Casper and Vanessa. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. I'm Casper Terkyle, and this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. It is our Outpost episode, and we're going to be speaking with the fabulous, the wonderful, the extremely intelligent Rabbi Scott Perlow later on in the episode. So make sure you stick around for that. You'll remember him from the end of season two, where he taught us Pardes, one of our favorite spiritual practices. And we'll be talking to Scott about canon. What is canon? What isn't canon? How do we know something is inside the tradition, something's outside the tradition? Sadly, we don't have Vanessa with us this week because she is off sick. But I'm very excited to be joined by nearly headless Nick, who unfortunately has lost his voice. So it's just the two of us in the studio, but you'll only be hearing me. So for our first voicemail, I sent out a question inspired by a number of people who came to our Minneapolis live show about what happens in libraries. Throughout the books, we see especially the trio and, of course, especially Hermione going to the library to find answers. And I was really interested to think about what do we learn about the characters in how they engage with libraries, especially how they learn about new information. So our first voicemail is from Laurie Stevens. 
Hey, Vanessa and Casper. My name is Lori and I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. One of the reasons I'm passionate about libraries is because I work at one. I'm an employee at the Nashville Public Library and we won 2017's Library of the Year, which was super exciting. Another reason I'm passionate about libraries is because they're one of the last free, public, and democratic institutions in the United States, which is becoming increasingly important, (laughs) as I'm sure you can guess. Um, I work in the technology department here at the library, and we have a 76-computer lab. It's huge, and it's public, open to anyone, even if they don't have a library card. And this is so important because a lot of the folks that we see on a regular basis are experiencing homelessness, and they don't own computers or folks who are just experiencing poverty and can't get their hands on a computer. So a lot of folks come here so that they can check their emails or go on YouTube or Google things or apply to jobs, just like the rest of us, but they have to come to the library to do it. And we think that is so important because there are so few jobs now that have paper applications. There are so few places where you can just spend time, spend the day without being bothered by the police. And so what we do here is, in my opinion, very sacred. We hold space for folks who are experiencing a lot of trauma, a lot of pressures, a lot of stress. And so we provide a space for them to just find the information they need and just enjoy the day. And spaces like these are increasingly rare. So I'm super pumped to be an employee of the National Public Library. And I'm very excited that you guys are having a day to talk about libraries. Thanks for letting me gush a little bit. Have a great day. First of all, Laurie, huge congratulations on winning Library of the Year. That's a huge deal and no doubt is in part to the incredible effort and love that you and your colleagues have for the work that you do. So thank you for that. I am so taken by this idea of a library, not just as a place of knowledge, but a place of opportunity, you know, in the way that you talked about people being able to apply for jobs or being able to meet with other people in a safe place where they're not going to be bothered or to have some quiet space. I think in this time where so many of us are overwhelmed by information and by conversation, to have places of quiet is so rare and so valuable. And it made me think about what the library is to the students at Hogwarts, because in some ways it's not a public library. This is definitely far away from the kind of access and openness that your work models. But it is a place of refuge in some way. It's a place where certainly Hermione, but we know other characters too, retreat to to not be bothered by the outside world. It's a place where they can really focus, unless, of course, Victor Crumb is, you know, trying to ask them out on a date. The other thing that I love about libraries, and I think that your message so beautifully embodies, is that it's more than just offering access to information or opportunity. It's actually a radically inclusive space in a time when more and more institutions are struggling to serve a full scope of humanity. You know, institutions are often seen as elitist or untrustworthy or self-serving. And I feel like libraries do this incredible job of actually being available to everyone and are therefore underfunded and targeted because they are actually doing their job. So for anyone who works in a library, especially in a public library, I just want to say that we are so grateful to you and uh, just make sure people see those Harry Potter books up front by the desk. Our next voicemail is from Kate McManus, one of those very people who approached us in Minneapolis suggesting this theme. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. Kate McManus here, a librarian that has worked in both academic and special library collections. This is a well-timed owl post because Gobble the Fire is the last book that Harry goes to the library for answers to his questions. 
As you may imagine, I have a lot to say about the library at Hogwarts. I've been interrogating it for a while, and I've even created a catalog for all the books Harry encounters on his journey, hogwartslibrary.omika.net. In that project, what I found most interesting are the alarming gaps in Harry's magical education, and I have a few ideas why that might be the case. First, I'm horrified to say that the library is complicit in the terrible pedagogy at Hogwarts. From what we can tell, the library is organized by subject, but beyond that, we have no idea how it works because Madame Pince never shows our trio how to use the library as a school librarian should. They are also afraid to ask her questions, most notably in Sorcerer's Stone when they don't ask her about Nicholas Flamel. In part, this is because even Hogwarts bows to an ivory tower tradition that would be familiar to muggles, especially in academia. In Dumbledore's notes for Tales of Beetle the Bard, he nobly recounts an instance where he refused to restrict access to children's stories that showed muggles in a good light. We are meant to applaud Dumbledore, yet at some point, he moved all of the books on Horcruxes from the school library to his office. And he supports, or does not protest, a restricted section in the school library. We are told that the restricted section is full of books, for students studying advanced defense against the dark arts, and it's left at that. Not even Hermione questions these restrictions. Finally, I have some thoughts on how to fix this mess, starting with hiring a bigger staff. I suspect Madame Pitts is so unhelpful because she's burned out. Also, having more staff would lead to ethical discussions about the library profession. I would dedicate myself to creating library instruction courses where students can learn how to access and evaluate the information they need to be successful. Instruction courses also teach users to judge if information is credible when they encounter it outside of the library, important for us all to remember. I would absolutely dismantle the restricted section. Also, the library could be a place for students across houses to collaborate and a place for interdisciplinary scholarship to happen. I would create more student-friendly spaces in the library, as well as levels of noise like loud areas, group study rooms, and silent study rooms. I hope some of these thoughts are as interesting to you as they are to me, and I certainly can't wait to hear what others think of the Hogwarts Library. Thanks, everyone. Kate, you're amazing. First of all, I love the idea of of having open applications for all the roles that we hear about in the book. Like, let's recruit three extra librarians from our listening community. Like, let's add a couple of TFs for the Defense Against the Dark Arts class. I just think if we really got our stuff together, we as a community would make an amazing pedagogical team for Hogwarts. So, first of all, I love it. Secondly, I am looking at this incredible document that you've created listing all of the books that we encounter in the story. Dragon Breeding for Pleasure and Profit, an anthology of 18th century charms. It's amazing to just think about all these little moments that we travel to when we look at the title of a book just to remind you of, you know, Wanderings with Werewolves immediately reminds me of Lockhart. So I'm just I'm just thinking about a library as a treasure of memories as well. Like, you know, when you look at your own collection of books, the reason why I keep them is not because I think I'm going to reread all of them, but it reminds me who I was when I read them. So I'm just suddenly seeing the value of a library as an institutional memory in itself. Like by understanding the library, you're going to understand what's happened in this place. And that's what Hogwarts of History is so much about, like Hermione's obsession with that book, and I would call it an obsession, is that it's a key to understanding the magical world for someone who didn't grow up with it. And I I think libraries as a place of discovery and a place of character formation is something we haven't thought enough about. I'm also really glad you bring up the restricted section. And I think 
in some ways, Hogwarts sets up so many of the difficult dynamics that we encounter over and over again. You know, the fact that you're not allowed to learn the most dangerous curses. By making them more taboo, we're making them more dangerous in some way. And and I feel like there's got to be a better way of engaging students in understanding risk and danger, but at the same time, giving them the access to the knowledge they need in order to thrive and in Harry's case, survive. So let's put that one down for another pedagogy at Hogwarts Vale. Thanks, Kate. And just another word of thanks to everyone who sent in voicemails about libraries. I feel like I've learned a lot. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Pros. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Our next voicemail is from Talia Sana. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. This is Talia calling from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I just listened to chapter 16 on resentment, and I was wondering if it was possible to actually send a message back to Janelle Kramer. Um, I really loved her message, and I think a lot of women feel the way she does and are scared to talk about it. Um, But what I wanted to share um, was something that the two of you may know is that in Judaism, when someone announces that they're pregnant, you're not supposed to say congratulations to them. What you're actually supposed to say is bisha'a tova, which literally means at a good hour, but sort of more figuratively means may it come at a good time. And the traditional explanation for this is that lots of things could go wrong in a pregnancy, and this is not jinxing the pregnancy. Um, 
But I like to read this a little bit differently. I like to see an acknowledgement that women have all sorts of really complicated feelings about being pregnant. And I like to hear it as saying those feelings are okay and they're acceptable and they're normal. And just a blessing, Bishatova is a blessing that whenever this baby does arrive, may it come at a good time. May it come at a time where it feels like a joy and not a burden. May it come at a time when you feel prepared for it. And may it come at a time when you can be happy with it. So that's all. I hope you can get that message back to her. Thanks so much for the show. I really love it. Talia, I'm so thrilled to hear you responding to Janelle's voicemail. It makes me so happy to think that someone in Cambridge is talking to someone in Colorado and we're all engaging with each other through this listening community. So for anyone else who has responses to other voicemails, please do send them in. And I'm really hoping that we'll have more conversation in our social media spaces as well, where people can engage with each other. Our final voicemail is from Ava Resnick Day, who sent us a slightly longer voicemail than we would usually play, but it's just such a fascinating story that we thought we would share it with you all. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. This is Eva Resnick Day, Hufflepuff from Pittsburgh. Um, thank you so much for your podcast. It's really gotten me through some depressed times. So I'm calling because I loved the discussion on opportunity and specifically all of the things that need to come together in a given moment and all of the pre-work, the emotional um, labor that goes into being able to recognize and take advantage of an opportunity when it arises. And this conversation reminded me of a time in my life when so many things had to come together for me to take advantage of an opportunity that gave me my 15 minutes of fame in the national media for a week. So it's 2016 in the Democratic primary, and at the time, I work for Greenpeace USA as a democracy organizer. So we were asking Hillary Clinton to reject the small amount of fossil fuel money that she had received in her campaign as a way to condemn the money of an industry that is literally poisoning our children and families and condemning generations in the future to suffering. So my job was to help put on these small rallies at her fundraisers and train individuals to bird dog or show up in person and ask her the question to reject fossil fuel money. And I don't think people understand how much work goes into simply asking a question to someone at such a high status as Hillary Clinton. So first off, you have to show up to these rallies at least six hours early and wait in line hoping to get to the front if you're persistent. Um, and then you have to wait through this rally the whole time, hoping that at the end, the candidate will come through and decide to shake your hand, giving you the opportunity to ask. And even if that happens and you're able to ask your question, you don't forget what you want to say. It's completely up to that candidate whether they even decide to respond or not. And then, of course, how they respond. So a lot goes into it. And this day in purchase, a few things happened that influenced the way that Clinton responded to me that were never really reported in the media. So first off, there was a crew of Bernie folks outside who held a protest rally that was way better attended than the rally inside. So, you know, Hillary Clinton is hoping to become the first woman president of the United States after decades and decades and decades of work. And her own party is organizing to stop that for another white man. 
And it's in this moment that me, the most excited, smiling individual up front, um, asks Clinton the question, thank you so much for tackling climate change. Will you reject fossil fuel money in the future in your campaign? And as she starts to say, it's only fossil fuel employees, I interject and registered lobbyists, and she is not happy. She gets really close to me, um, brings out a finger in my face and says, I am so sick. I am so sick of the Sanders campaign lying about me. And then she walks away. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. And I'm shaking a little bit. So uh, we head back to New York and I go out to dinner with my lovely aunt and brother. And unbeknownst to me during this time, the Bernie folks saw this video that Greenpeace had posted and they were on Reddit saying like, oh my God, we need to make this go viral. We need this to be national news on every television station. So at dinner with my aunt and brother, my phone starts to ring again and again, and I am just kind of sneaking off, taking these phone calls. At one point, it was the New York Times. Another point, it was the Washington Post asking me if Hillary Clinton owed me an apology. And I'm like, no, but she should reject fossil fuel money. This is about tone, not substance. And the days that followed were just really nuts for me. I was connected to movement leaders that I had been reading for a decade and having conversations. At the next Democratic debate, they asked a question about fossil fuel money and talked about climate change for the longest time that they had during the entire primary season, which was really special. And none of it would have happened if all of these things didn't come together in this one moment to take advantage of this opportunity. And obviously, I look back with different colored glasses right now. I... Um, I often dream about getting a drink with Hillary Clinton and hashing it out. I've started a few handwritten letters, but it was just such an important moment in my life that has defined who I am and the experiences that I've had and the stories that I tell and share for a long time. So thanks so much. That's my story. Eva, what a crazy story. I just went on YouTube and looked at the clip and I saw you asking the question. And it has 2.6 million views. I mean, it's insane. Um, I mean, I have such compassion for people who are on the campaign trail. That must just be exhausting. But also for you of standing there and, you know, having to wait six hours to to get in line and ask your question. But it, the thing that really strikes me is that this moment in some ways is such a non-moment. Like, yeah, it's a brief interaction and Hillary's clearly frustrated and you're clearly doing an excellent job of asking your question. But the fact that it became this much bigger moment in the debates then and climate change was really pushed to the top of the agenda just has something to say about how we can create moments that matter from moments that don't seem to matter at all, which is a really interesting invitation. So I'm grateful for you sharing that story. Thanks, Eva. We're so glad to welcome back Rabbi Scott Perlow. Scott was with us at the end of season two and was our guest at our DC live show. Scott is a rabbi at the historic Sixth and I Synagogue in DC and is about to embark on a new adventure. Is that right, Scott? 
That's right, Casper. It's great to be back on the show. Um, with great sadness, I'm leaving my community at six and I, but with great excitement, I'll be at the 92nd Street Y in New York as of this summer. The Big Apple. <laughs> Either way, we're so glad to have you back, Scott. And I'm glad what to be we back. wanted to dig into conversation with you with in this Outpost episode was to really understand an element of sacred text that we haven't yet talked about very much. The idea that a sacred text is part of a canon. There's a moment where a decision is made that some text is part of the canon, is part of the sacred text, and some of it is not. And there's all sorts of reasons historically why that happens. And I think in some ways we're having that conversation in the Harry Potter universe right now about is the cursed child really considered canon? Are the kind of Twitter pronouncements that J.K. Rowling offers part of the way we should understand the original story or not? So would you tell us a little bit about what do the Jewish sacred texts look like? What's considered canon? What's not considered canon? How do those two things interact? And, and how should we even think about this question? Uh, you're asking one of the most confusing questions there is, which is like, why are things the way that they are? <laughs> you know, And <laughs> it's true. And it's true. By the way, one of the questions that's always interested me about the Harry Potter books is, you know, when it comes to the canon, and I'm going to just like put it in quotes, like, what did her editor take out? You know, before when she was writing, like, what are the scraps on the editing room floor that didn't quite make it into the books that were originally written? And that's one of the questions that you have to ask yourself about canon, because canon isn't just a question of then and now. The thing that we know about canon is that if you're writing something, you're not the person who gets to decide whether or not it is canon. There's almost always an editor who comes back around later, and it's that editor who makes something canon. And that's true of Jewish books too. It's true of the Bible. This may surprise some of your listeners, but the Bible was edited. And we know that certain books just didn't make it in. And the same thing is too with the, the big book of Judaism, the Talmud. That was heavily, heavily edited as well. What is the Talmud? I've heard these phrases, the Torah, the Talmud, the Mishnah. Like what, what are these different pieces of the Jewish scriptures? Uh, it's like, it's sometimes hard to put into words because just like anything worthwhile or beautiful in this world, when you try to give it one definition, there's always a part of it that doesn't quite fit into that definition. You know what I'm saying? There's <laughs> yeah. always something that you can't quite squeeze into the box. But so the Bible, as we call it in Hebrew, the Tanakh, the writing, the Torah, the writings um, and the prophets more or less came together um, in the period about a thousand before the common era. Mm. And Sometime around the common era, people who would eventually call themselves or be called the rabbis started having conversations about the Torah, mm. using the Torah as a proof text, as the raw material, but creating something new, something vastly more complicated, something incredibly rich, a, a text that would describe actually all the debates that were being had over an entire civilization. But these debates were actually crystallized and set down into writing. And then a bunch of people sort of went in and filled in the gaps, sort of made the text understandable, provided context, helped explain what debates might really be about, helped extend those ideas. And that edited document became what we know as the Talmud. And it's the basis of all Jewish law today. I hope that helps. I'm still trying to understand what it is. I mean, do you see, are there still conversations today within the Jewish world about what should be considered canon and what shouldn't? So what I'll say is that in the Jewish world, 
And I think in every spiritual tradition, they're just periods of expansion and periods of um, contraction. And I don't mean contraction in a bad way. I mean, when you're adding more or when you're going deep. Mm. I actually think we're in a period of expansion in the Jewish world. I don't think that anything's ever going to rival the Bible or the Talmud, but there's lots and lots and lots of new writing that's happening. But then what happens after that is, you know, it's actually really important to stop that at a certain point, because otherwise what you get is just anything that anyone has ever written about the topic at hand. And um, sometimes that's great and sometimes that's not. And really what makes a tradition live and thrive is when people actually decide to go back to the well mm. and and draw deep from within it. You know, and if that doesn't happen, I don't know how something really becomes a spiritual cornerstone. That makes so much sense. Because, I mean, we've made the decision really to focus only on the seven books, the original series. You know, we're not really talking about what we learn in the movies or in any of the other later writings. So it feels like we're kind of sticking with that part of the continuum of going deep. And it feels like before you can expand, you should go deep, that only when you have that foundation can you then kind of step back and, and engage a larger series of texts. Does that make sense to you as an approach? It does, but only as long as you allow yourself to be annoyed in a positive way by all the stuff that doesn't fit your paradigm. Okay, tell me more about that. You know, the people who want to go deep always have to allow for the people who want to go wide, and the people who want to go wide always have to be allowed for the people who want to go deep. And the problem is actually, the problem is purity. When people only go Mm. deep, that's when you actually get the flattening of really juicy, meaningful spiritual ideas. So as long as you like have in the back of your mind that the cursed child is there and are slightly annoyed by it and make reference to it, you're doing your spiritual job, Casper. (laughs) I love that. I love that. So if you were in our shoes, how would you make sure that we do that? To be in the to be in those conversations and to to be able to kind of mix that breadth and depth. I think the coolest thing that you could do is every once in a while bring in something that someone's saying from what you consider to be beyond the canon to speak about the canon that you guys love so much. Yeah, because then you get a different perspective on the canon itself that's informed by things that are outside of the canon. That's right. That's right. And for those who are like, you know, divinity school grads or Bible geeks, I I can't imagine who I'm speaking to on this podcast. (laughs) I don't know if you guys heard, but the books of Ezra and Nehemiah have commentary on the Torah within them. Mm. So even though they're part of the canon, they were already responding to the canon. Well, that's another piece that I'm really curious about. And I think in some ways the Jewish tradition does this maybe much better than the Christian tradition, which is that it sees itself as a conversation across time. And that these rabbinic commentaries, you literally see arguments happening on the page between one rabbi who thinks this and another rabbi who thinks that. I I just love that visual kind of representation of that conversation through time. It's so cool. It is very cool. And one of the things that strikes me about the books is it actually does happen in Harry Potter. Mm. Um, It's just, I'm not sure anyone would think about it this way. But in the Half-Blood Prince, do you remember the Half-Blood Prince's advanced potion books? Professor Snape's marginalia, or what that turns that book into something special. Oh my God, Scott, that's awesome. (laughs) Wow. Can we end the podcast now? Should I drop the (laughs) mic and leave? (laughs) 
<laughs> that is incredible. Well, and I'm also thinking about the conversation Ginny has with Tom Riddle through the diary in the second book, where it really right. is a conversation across time, where she's she feels seen by oh, this specter of That's a of good one, past. Casper. Oh, thanks, man. I got game two. Scott, another question that I'm really thinking about as, as we think about this conversation through time and we think about text is which voices are lifted up as canon and which ones aren't. And of course, so many of our best religious traditions have grown out of contexts which are very patriarchal, which have all sorts of biases inherent in, in their cultural context. And so men's voices especially are really lifted up in religious writing not completely, but certainly dominant. And I wondered if you have any thoughts about that question of power and canon. How can we look for marginalized voices even within the canonical text that we have? Well, there are hints of them. They show up. It's, it's amazing how you can't keep certain voices down, how you can't keep the voice of Deborah, the judge, down. You know, it, I mean, it's, it's remarkable that a thousand years or so before the Common Era, the major biblical figure, the major legal figure, the major governmental military figure was a woman named Vora, the honeybee, who sat beneath her palm tree and gave judgment to all of Israel. And the same is the true with the story of Hannah, which is at the beginning of the book of Samuel. And it's hard because there is a way in which those voices have been either stripped out or edited out, but sometimes they leave a trace. And there's a whole field of scholarship and a whole field of writers out there who collect those footprints and who look and who try to fill them out a little bit. One of the great examples is an Israeli writer by the name of Ruth Calderon, who also was a member of uh, Knesset, a member of the Israeli parliament, ah. um, which is amazing. But she wrote a number of books. Uh, one of them is called A Bride for One Night, in which she takes stories from the Talmud, and she lifts up the hints of the women's voices that are within them um, and turns them into new stories of themselves. They're, they're really beautiful and really remarkable. But I also think that the work that is being done now is the work that will be um, will change things, will rock the, you know, shift the canon on its axis forever. The more that we lift up those marginalized voices now, the more that our children will hear them as the voices of history. I love that idea of footprints in the text, that there is always a story behind the text. There's always a contextual understanding which helps us see a broader picture. And Scott, I also love the idea that even though the canon is closed in some way, right, that time has passed, the way we tell the story today actually can change the canon as it goes forward. Like what you're saying about how we tell the stories now and as we look for more marginalized voices, the way we pass that on to our children will mean that they receive a different canon, even though the text is the same. That's really cool. Scott, I'd love if you could talk just a little bit more about the conversation between rabbis and between rabbis over time. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that works and what does it look like on the page and where did that tradition come from? Who who was the first rabbi to start commenting and writing it down and then the next one to, you know, just, just some history would be really fabulous. Sure. I, I want to tell you the story of um, a person whose story should be told a lot more, whose name was uh, Nachmanides or uh, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman. And he lived in Girona, which is on the border of modern day Spain and modern day France in the Middle Ages. And he's famous for a lot of reasons. He was a poet and uh, a mystic and a teacher and a scholar. And he is renowned in Jewish history. He once actually had to defend the Talmud in Barcelona 
in front of the king of Aragon, Peter of Aragon. And uh, even though the Catholics sort of declared victory in that particular moment, it was pretty well understood that he had spoken so eloquently that he really won the argument. Peter of Aragon said something like, never have I heard an incorrect idea explained so beautifully. But the Ramban is a remarkable figure, really erudite, um, incredibly learned, but he is one of the major commentators on the Torah, on the five, what we call the five books of Moses, what people know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what he does, he's special because he's really the first of the commentators to create a conversation between other commentators. He shows up a century or two after the great granddaddies of Bible commentary, a guy named Rashi, and a guy named Ibn Ezra. Now, these are all nicknames that we have for them. Rashi lived in France, and Ibn Ezra lived in North Africa. And even though the two of them, I think, knew about each other, they don't reference each other. But the way that Ramban, Nachmanides, begins his commentary is, I heard Ibn Ezra say this, or Rashi teaches thus. And then he begins to talk about them. And what he does is even though there are centuries between them, he creates a conversation between three rabbis who didn't know each other in real life. That's so awesome. Scott, one of the things that we've seen a lot of fans do engaging canon is to create their own stories. You know, Stephanie Purcell, who is a friend of the podcast, talks about a text is sacred when it's a generative text. And so the kind of the mass levels of fan fiction writing that is out there speaks to that in some way with with the Potter books. And of course, no text has been more generative than the Bible, whether it's music or poetry or, or fiction. And I wondered if there's any aspects of writing that you've seen as a sacred practice, particularly when it comes to responding to a canonical text like this? Yeah, that is, I think, really one of the most important questions of our time as we're trying to innovate within traditions that we don't want to leave behind, even as we step forward yeah. into a very different, very new world. But the one thing I can say, actually, to flip it on its head, that doesn't make for spiritual writing, writing is giving your opinion mm. about whether you like or dislike what's in front of you. Mm. Telling whether or not you like the Harry Potter book, that's not spiritual writing. Taking one word from any of the books and spinning a new world out of it, that's spiritual writing. Mm. I mean, that's what you taught us to do with Pardes. And we have loved imagining walking through the kind of the orchard of the text. That's so great. Right? Pardes, the orchard. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We, re we remember, we were good students. Scott, I, I want to say a huge thank you for traveling with us through the books and traveling with us through history to think about questions of canon and legitimacy and boundaries and sacred text in a whole new way. So is there anything else you'd want us to know before we bring our conversation to a close? Just how much I love being on the show. <laughs> uh, it's so fun to be back. I wish you all well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Scott. You're the best. Lots of love. <laughs> Hi guys, calling in from post-op healing here. A huge thanks to Nearly Headless Nick for stepping in. I really think you did me proud. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. We've launched our second pilgrimage through Common Ground, our pilgrimage sub-organization, and it's going to be reading Little Women and talking about writing in Concord, Massachusetts, October 11th through 14th. You can learn more about it at readingandwalkingwith.com. 
Next week, we will be reading chapter 31, The Third Task, through the theme of kindness. This episode was produced by Nearly Headless Nick, Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkyle, and me, Vanessa Sultan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. A huge, huge thank you this week to Scott Perlow, Lori Stevens, Kate McManus, Talia Sarna, Ava Resnick Day, and as always, to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Julia Argy, and Stephanie Paulsell. We'll talk to you next week. Now, is this is this the same guy as Maimonides, or he's a different guy? No, no, that's why there's actually like a they're different people, and Maimonides like took the like the prize, and not, <laughs> like Nachmanides never gets the credit because he, he, that's due him because poor of his more famous neighbor. Yeah, poor <laughs> Nachmanides, poor Nachmanides. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.